Welcome to Greening the News, the podcast from IEMA, the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. My name is Sarah Mukherjee and I'm IEMA's Chief Executive. We're the professional organisation for anyone involved in sustainability and the environment. We provide skills and training and develop the policy our members wish to see at international and regional level. As you are bound to have noticed if you keep abreast of the news, COP26 is fast approaching. More than 190 countries are expected to be represented in Glasgow at the talks, which are being billed as the last chance for global leaders to commit to a GHG reduction path which will lead to capping global temperature increases at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, when I was a journalist for the BBC, I covered more than my share of COPs and well remember the breathless conversations about subjects that were pretty impenetrable, even for those who were familiar with climate change science. For example, whether certain obscure protocols were going to stay inside square brackets in one part of the overall agreement, meaning they were not going to be a full part of the final communique. However, outside the policy speak, there is a need to, according to, well, pretty much everyone, for action rather than words. But will we see any? And do we expect too much of these big set-piece conferences, hoping they will deliver huge change when in fact the solutions are as varied and complex as the problem? Well, in a moment, I'll be speaking to two experts in this field who are seasoned COP watchers. But first, here's Andre Farah with his roundup of the news for our sector. For once, you don't have to look far for news concerning the environment and sustainability issues. The impending climate conference, COP26, is driving an outpouring of government announcements, reports, polling and opinion as the world stands on the brink of decisions that will shape the future for generations to come. Critical to the UK's plans for tackling the threats of global heating and maximising the economic opportunities that this brings, the net zero strategy is the long-awaited roadmap to addressing the climate crisis. It's one of the world's first such strategies and is launched in the glare of global scrutiny as the UK prepares to host COP26 in Glasgow. Reaction was predictably mixed. In the face of the biggest existential threat to the health of the planet and all of our futures, the publication is only ever going to be a step on the path to net zero. Was it enough? There is much more work to be done, particularly in terms of funding and the timing of key policy interventions. Speed is of the essence, and all eyes will now turn to Glasgow, where it is essential that we see positive outcomes. Delivery of the net zero strategy requires full engagement across society, so IEMA welcomed the news that the strategy includes support for 440,000 jobs across net zero industries by 2030. A good start, but ultimately we believe all jobs should contribute to greening the economy. In moving quickly to a sustainable future, it is essential that diversity and inclusion are part of any strategy to build a greener workforce. The Environment Bill now seems like an old friend as it has moved slowly through its parliamentary processes. Over three years, the bill has become the repository of much optimism that it will herald a positive future for nature and our environment. Its glacial parliamentary process is coming to an end, with a round of amendments that were tabled in the House of Lords being largely rejected in the Commons. 
This has led to an inevitable and consistent howl of protest from commentators and environmental organisations already frustrated by delays to the bill. As the landmark environment bill nears the end of the process, it will soon be time to judge if it can live up to the claims that it will be truly world-leading. Thanks, Andre. So, what can we and should we expect from the COP? Joining me now are two people who have unique perspectives on the process. Dan Hamza-Goodacre has developed, delivered and supported solutions to climate change for governments, charitable foundations, international organisations and businesses in more than 60 countries since 1998. Dan is currently an advisor to the UK COP26 unit, to the Energy Transition Council and to the UN High-Level Climate Champions team. He's a chartered environmentalist and a fellow of IEMA. Louise Pryor is another of our fellows. She's been a Director of Actuarial Standards at the Financial Reporting Council, where she led the development of the Technical Actuarial Standards. She's practised as an independent consultant in the areas of software risk and sustainability and has worked on financial modelling for social security and pensions reform in a number of emerging economies. She became a Fellow of the Institute of Actuaries in 1987 and a fellow of IEMA in 2019. Louise and Dan, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Greening the News. And Dan, I wonder if I could perhaps start with you for a new reader start here, if you like. I mean, we hear these words COP26, but sometimes it's a bit difficult to unpick what's actually going on and why these uh, conferences are happening in the first place. Hi, Sarah. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's great to be joining this discussion at such an important time. I'll set the scene as quickly as I can. So the the COPs or the Conference of the Parties, they do happen every year. But the reason why this is being badged as such a pivotal COP is, well, at least twofold. Firstly, because whilst they happen every year, there's a five yearly cycle where leaders are coming together to agree even greater ambition and progress. And many of your listeners may remember the COP in Paris. That was five, well, now six years ago because of the one-year delay, but that was a major moment where countries came together to increase ambition. And then before that, for those maybe uh, a bit older, might remember the COP in Copenhagen. And so we're at this next five-year mark where ambition needs to be ratcheted. So there's this institutional reason uh, why this is seen as such a pivotal cop. But the other is really that the clock is ticking. Uh, We face the challenge of having to reduce emissions by 50% by the end of this decade, and yet they're on track to increase by 16%. And so if we don't achieve significant ambition for this cop and If the cycle does not bring leaders together for such ambitious moments until, let's say, 2026, then, well, time, many would say, would have run out by then. Yes, and it's the clock, as you said, is ticking at the moment. Louise, what are your expectations from this conference? I mean, as we mentioned, you have huge experience in financial and actuarial services. Do you think that your sectors that you have expertise in are going to get something out of these discussions? Well, yes. First, thanks for having me on this. I think I'm really looking forward to this discussion. 
I'm not so worried about the particular sectors I'm involved with. I'm worried about the world, to be honest. I think that's the most important thing. I mean, like many people, I'm nervous about this, but kind of positive too. Positive to a certain extent is I think there's increasing recognition across all levels, you know, from individuals through companies and corporates up to countries that we really are on a precipice here and it really is, you know, we've absolutely got to do something. So I think that's positive because people are realising it. Nervous because although the evidence is stark, I mean, absolutely stark and a very, very clear challenge, there's so much needs to happen to succeed. We need a lot of difficult and complex political battles that need to be sorted out and deals to be agreed and so on. So I think we're closer to success than we have been, but there's an awful lot that needs to go right in order for the good things to happen. That's a very good point, isn't it, Dan, that you know, with even when you have bilateral diplomatic conversations, when two parties come together, there's a huge amount of work and preparation and what can the two countries agree in public. I mean, when you multiply that by 80 or 90 to have all the conferences, all the moving parts of people who are coming, it's a, I mean, it's a logistical headache as well as actually a, a headache in trying to get some agreement, isn't it? It is, yes. And there's a very well used phrase, which is nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And that requires a huge amount of of diplomacy and a fair dose of patience. But I like to think of the COPs as being more than just a negotiation. They are absolutely a negotiation between all parties. But there's also a lot that happens in what I call the near negotiation space. And that's where countries come together, sometimes just bilaterally or sometimes in clusters. And that's where countries also forge partnerships with non-state actors, whether they're businesses or investors or civil society organisations. And it's that near negotiation space where we also see a lot of ambition and commitments being made to emissions reductions and to finance. And then, of course, we have the civil society arena. And I always think that's one of the most exciting parts of the COP is to go to the side events and whether they're during the day or whether somebody's throwing a bit of a bash in the late afternoon or the evening. They are full of ideas. They are full of perspectives from people all around the world. And there's lots of progress. And of course, there's a fair bit of protest that goes on too. And and that's really healthy for creating the pressure that's required. So I think we need to look at the COPs as they are negotiations. They are near negotiation space and they're a moment for civil society to come together to make its voice heard. Really glad you mentioned that because that was going to be, in fact, part of the next question. I wondered if perhaps, Dan, I could ask you that first before moving to Louise. There'll be people even within our sector who are finding that, you know, the conversation within their own organisations is very different from even five years ago. Now it's a C-suite issue. You've got the CEO, CFO asking, how can we be more sustainable? And yet, if you look at the international stage, China may or may not participate, Brazil may or may not, you know, there's an awful lot of uncertainties. I mean, do you think that if you're looking as an observer to these talks, they might not look like they're delivering the sort of real benefit you would expect from such a crucial time in the world's history? Yes, Sarah, I think that is a problem. That's something we as a community need to work collectively on in order to make sure that we don't send the wrong signals and uh, sort of 
reduce the incentives for action because you know one of the challenges is really about politics in fact it's probably the biggest challenge unfortunately uh, the politics is still very much riddled with a blame game and fingers are pointed at richer countries mostly uh, countries that have produced the most emissions which of course now includes the likes of china but historically the united states and european countries and japan are in there and that tends to lead to a more negative sort of framing of what needs to be discussed and what needs to happen. But that's a challenge. I would say, though, that I'm very pleased that we've got to a point, at least I think, uh, where the science is not the challenge anymore. Okay, the politics is a challenge, but I don't think the science is. And, you know, that is a real milestone that we can be pleased to have met with the excellent work of scientists throughout the years. So, yes, political challenges. And we need to get across, I think, the message that those countries that have emitted the most and you know, have also the capacity to do the most can unlock the pathway to a clean energy future. And that can bring down costs and that can have these spillover benefits that can allow the, the poorer countries and those that haven't emitted as much over time to reap some of the benefits of this fast action of those countries that have. Louise, that's a really interesting point, isn't it, about how the scientific community has become much more clear and trenchant even about the science. But do you think that there is a difference between what we're seeing going on internationally and what we're being asked as part of our business lives, which is very much, you know, what can we do about sustainability? How can we become more sustainable in our business practice? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree on the science. It's really important. So in my field, in the financial world, we talk about climate risk a lot. And by climate risk, we don't mean climate change itself. That's a certainty. You know, there is no risk there. Climate change is a certainty. The risk comes from the impacts in that we don't know exactly what the impacts are going to be to businesses, to the economy, that sort of thing. And I think That is a huge change within the last, certainly the last 10 years and and really rather less than that, and is making a huge difference. But what it does mean is that we really have to focus on action. And I mean, I think this is one of the big challenges about COP is that we see it in terms of negotiations. We see it, as Dan said, people see it in terms of a blame game that, you know, we must make sure that this country doesn't do badly out of the negotiations or whatever. But in the end, it's action that counts because otherwise the whole world is going to suffer. So it's how we change these negotiations and the words that are produced. And there will be commitments produced. I mean, you know, there will be an agreement. There will be people making a lot of commitments. But it's really important that we then keep focused on how to turn all that into actual action. I'm really interested, Louise, at the way... You're seeing this as a citizen first and a financial and actuarial expert second. I mean, do you think it's once you start knowing when you have expertise in this space, is it almost impossible not to see it in that way? Well, I, I don't know about anybody else, but it is for me because, you know, I think of the impacts on people, on, you know, you, me, everybody else. There's a brilliant cartoon I don't know if you've seen it. Two people on a desert island crouched over their fire, waste all around, you know, and then something to the effect of, yes, but for a brief moment back there, the return on capital was immense. The return on capital or whatever isn't important in this context. 
but you're you're not necessarily in the majority there are you um in terms of you know other people conversations that i think we all have that it is about how can you get the same return on capital but in a way that is looks more sustainable to shareholders what always worries me is when people say oh but we can't afford it we can't afford to take the action that will reduce our carbon emissions or whatever because they seem to be saying that there are two options one we reduce our carbon and that means we have to you know pay the costs and so on or second we just keep going as we are and things just keep going normally as it were quotes normally and happily forever afterwards and that second option just isn't an option it's not going to happen if we don't reduce our carbon if we don't take action now the economic hit and the financial hit is going to be way way more than anything we can imagine basically anything we've seen in the last well in in the modern world so it's not a question of not being able to afford it it's a question of being able to we can't afford not to dan when you hear louise talk with such passion there is that something that you're seeing reflected obviously there are thousands tens of thousands of stakeholders involved in the whole overall process is that a sense that you're getting from from the people that you're talking to as well as part of that COP26 process? Absolutely. I think maybe also, I hope, uh, when one asks the question, you know, should we sacrifice the the planet, the stability of the planet, the future of the planet for profit, then the overwhelming majority of people say, no, of course we shouldn't do that. But unfortunately, there is this cognitive dissonance and it applies at that kind of macro level. And it also applies at the level of the purchases we make on an everyday basis when, you know, we say that we want to buy green goods, but then we look in our basket and we haven't actually bought green goods. Unfortunately, that is a big challenge. Um, The economics are very, very favourable, though, when one makes the comparison of the impacts of uh, climate change, whether that's fires or uh, floods or droughts and disruption when look when one looks at those impacts and weighs them up against the costs of action then the economics is incredibly positive it's also incredibly positive when one starts to look at particular technologies and the IEA came out last year and, and said that we've now had the cheapest electricity in history with solar power. So we're going not only from that big picture of the economics making sense, but we're going into specific sectors with technologies or energy efficiency where it makes sense. But I see there being a real problem. And I think this is a very large part of the conversation that I'm privy to, Sarah, to answer your question is that there's still a bit of a disconnect between the economics and the finance. And just because something makes economic sense does not mean that somebody has access to the finance to make that capital expenditure upfront, which then allows one to benefit from the operational savings, whether that's with solar power, whether that's now with electric vehicles, which are much cheaper to operate than buying a a petrol or a diesel car, but you need to be able to buy them upfront. And I think a lot of people just don't have access to that capital, or if they do, then they're still making a decision between, I need to have a new kitchen, I need to do something to my home or repair it or pay for some, you know, whatever it might be, and and not actually having enough money to make those additional purchases. So I think there's more that we need to do to provide really low cost, long term finance to consumers, you know, whether they're in households or businesses across the world in order to get a real acceleration in those products that we know work and that are commercially viable right now. 
you mentioned finance on a, a micro level. I mean, if you pull out to the macro, the international level, the US has pledged to double its climate finance, available climate finance. I mean, do you think that is going to be a game changer or I mean, does it help us begin to get over the line? I mean, how, how significant do you think that might be? And do you think there'll be other countries who will follow suit? Yeah, for this is such a big topic, Sarah, and it's one that's rumbled on for a long time. So I think the first thing I'd like to share with the audience is that the 100 billion figure is just the wrong number. There was a report last week suggesting it was an order of magnitude wrong for even just a few developing countries. It's in the trillions. It's not in the billions, really. So that's the first important point to register. The second and linked to that is that really it's more of a totemic issue than it is about the specific amount of finance. This was a promise that was made by developed countries and this is about trust and this is about the integrity of the international process and so for that reason it is very significant that the US has agreed to up its climate finance we're still short of the 100 billion promise uh, I think it's it's very close when one looks at, at the numbers so yes that number needs to be met in order to ensure there's trust in the system but we all need to work together and be smarter about how we can actually mobilise the much larger amount of finance that's needed for the world for the clean energy transition. I wonder if perhaps then I can ask this to you first and then again move to Louise to ask. We put a huge amount of weight on these international, I mean as you said, once every five years you have the kind of stock take and the ratchet up. We've heard very loads of stuff in every single kind of national, international media is, is all talking about this. Is there a danger that these talks can kind of break under the weight of the expectations that are put around it. And no matter what happens out of them, it's never really going to be good enough when you think about how much people have been talking about it. I think that's right, Sarah. I think there's not going to be one cop that saved the world. There's, this is a collective effort and that effort needs to carry on. But I think we need to be clearer and also to have an evolving understanding of what the cops can actually do for the world and after paris and the agreement that countries came to to create nationally determined contributions that countries basically set their own level of ambition for we made ndc's a negotiated outcome but we made the amount of emissions that get reduced something which countries can control themselves and and i often think that since paris the value of the COP process has shifted somewhat from being so directly focused on the number of emissions that are going to be reduced and being about a moment of global expectation and a moment of global accountability and a moment of global attention. And that is hugely valuable. And I think it's actually not only yeah, it's right and it's also helpful that the expectations are really high and that creates some jeopardy and that creates some risk. And, and I hope that countries and stakeholders feel the pressure because that's where I think the COP can deliver some of the biggest benefits. And thank you, Dan. And Louise, do you think the COPs can ever live up to the hype? No, and yes. Um, <laughs> no, in I mean, Dan's quite right. You know, a single agreement, however wide-reaching, however many countries and so on, it's not going to change everything on its own. What really has to change is we have to have both societal change and, if you like, governmental policy action. And what we're doing at the moment, 
and possibly not fast enough, but hey, these things just aren't fast enough, is ratcheting. So you've got over the last few years, you've got society, certainly in many countries, the UK is one of them, becoming much, much more aware of the problem and more worried and therefore pushing, if you like, pushing the, the government for more action. And then if you get this big international conference that they actually do produce some visible and we hope binding and you know worthwhile commitments, that that then gets society, gets the people. I mean, it, it is a ratchet effect, I think, between the two, and you need both. We can't solve climate change just by us all driving less or flying less. There's got to be bigger, bigger changes than that. But on the other hand, any action governments take is going to affect the people. So the people on the ground have to be behind it too. So you need both. Louise and Dan, thank you so much. Our time is almost up. We always ask our guests uh, at the end whether they are optimistic or pessimistic about the future. And uh, no pressure here, but most people say, in fact, everybody said so far optimistic. Uh, Dan, uh, may I start with you? Optimist or pessimist? Yeah, 100% optimist. (laughs) Because... Because this is too big to fail. You know, Martin Luther King said, everything's impossible until it's done. And it's too important, Sarah. We we will find solutions. We, we will make this work. Brilliant. Thank you. Louise? I think less wholeheartedly optimistic than that, but optimist because there's always things we can do. We can always make it less bad. We can always make it better. And we are doing that. And, and the world is changing to make it better. So, yes, on that front, optimistic. Yes, slightly reserved optimist, but optimist nevertheless. Louise and Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Just a reminder to our listeners that we have the Environment and Sustainability Professionals Conference coming up on the 9th of December. It's free to IEMA members. There's some amazing speakers and some really rich opportunities to network with fellow professionals around the world. So please do register and get online with us on the 9th of December. Until we speak next time uh, from us here at Greening the News, thanks very much for joining us and see you next time. Thank you.